This episode is sponsored by Boomi. If you're anything like us and you care about conscious consumerism, you'll love the range of products that Boomi has on offer. Not only are all their products ethically made in fair trade certified factories, but they also use only premium organic cotton, which means no harmful pesticides, no toxic dyes, and there's no child or exploitative labor involved. They've just recently released new colors in their sateen bedding range and cable knit throws. Now you can choose from even more beautiful colors that best suit your bedroom. Super soft and always 100% cotton. We have a special offer for our listeners now and we're giving you 25% off store-wide using the discount code MINIMALISTVEGAN at checkout. This discount code is not in conjunction with any other offer, but nevertheless a great offer. To learn more about Boomi and their full range, visit boomi.com.au. That's b-h-u-m-i.com.au. Now on to the show. Welcome to episode 64 of the Minimalist Vegan Podcast. Hello, my name is Michael and I'm joined by my wife, Marsha. Hello. And in this episode, we're going to be talking about the intersection between sustainable living and minimalism, also known as eco-minimalism, a fresh new term for us to break down. So excited to get into that conversation. But before we do, do we have any updates from The Minimalist Vegan? Yeah, so since we last recorded, we have published a few new bits of content and Michael's been very keeping himself very busy. <laughs> We've got an article on how to avoid the traps of consumerism with 13 different strategies in there. And we've also got an interesting article that we've been thinking about writing for a long time. And we have a short section of it in our book as well, which is dog breeding. So this article is called Three Reasons Why You Shouldn't Buy a Dog from a Breeder. And I've also published a recipe about hummus. So how to make hummus from scratch using dried chickpeas. And I've gone into a lot of detail because there's a few tips and tricks in there that you might want to use to actually get the creamiest, fluffiest hummus that you've ever tried. So we're really enjoying that. We actually have a tub of it in the fridge always at the moment. And it's just a great little snack to have with some crackers and even as a part of a dish or um, in Middle Eastern countries they actually normally have it as breakfast and it's served warm typically not straight out of the fridge like most of us are used to so that's something that's something a little bit different um, and look you've been completely immersed in Middle Eastern cuisine and learning about it you're just completely fascinated by the flavors and I mean, we're talking about hummus, which is something that um, we we often overlook. It's something that we're all used to to eating and buying prepackaged. But I must admit, your your approach to this method that you have by using dried chickpeas is completely changed the texture and, and the flavor profile. And it's hard to think about going back to the way we used to eat hummus. Yes, it, whether it was bought. I mean, I rarely, rarely bought it. I might have bought it maybe twice in my life, but the way that I was even making it and the texture that I was getting, it does not compare to this at all. So it's, um, yeah, it's definitely worth a try if you enjoy. And even if you have had hummus in the past and have thought, mm, whatever, 
trust me, try this one. I think you'll really enjoy it. So that's the update from the website side of things but you have a little bit of an update with what you've been doing lately as well yeah so i think i mentioned in a previous episode i've been working with a a coach um and it's been absolutely transformational i know gee that sounds like a lot of hype but it has been and uh in addition to to her help i've finally read atomic habits by james clear new york times best-selling book and been following his work for for many years but man, this this book really did live up to those expectations and I can see why it's so popular. As a result of those two resources, I found myself finally waking up earlier. Uh, Self-employment at home has led to some pretty poor habits in terms of going to sleep late, you know, watching anime just before I go to sleep and waking up quite late as well. And whilst it's still 24 hours in a day, still fairly productive and do things, it just didn't feel right. I just felt sluggish waking up so late. So, uh, I've been uh, waking up at around 6am every morning and meditating and getting into a writing practice and I have felt like 10 times better, outputs much better as well. So um, if you haven't read Atomic Habits, I highly recommend that you, you give it a read. Uh, I shared a similar message on our last newsletter, which we sent out a few days ago. So if you aren't on our email list already, uh, you can sign up on our website. And that's really where we share some quick behind the scenes of what we're up to in, in addition to a summary of all of our content we've published in the week as well. So uh, that's what's been happening in my world. Very nice. exciting stuff. Yes. And it's interesting, like, because I'm not doing the same routine like I I have a slightly different well not slightly like have a completely different schedule to you but I've been enjoying that sort of quiet time in the house and not that it's crazy I mean we don't have children or anything so but um, because you get out of the house for those three hours to do writing at a hotel cafe so it's nice to sort of ease my way into the day with quiet in the house and do my meditation and breath work and do my yoga and all of that sort of stuff. So yeah, yeah I'm, I'm trying to implement some of those habits as well. But it's interesting how different we are still with what works for us. So absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And that's the key thing. I mean, I think at times we've tried to do the same thing and it just hasn't really mm. felt right. You know, we've got our bodies and minds that operate very differently. So yeah. I found- feel like my body just needs more sleep than yours. Yeah. Or maybe I'm just not getting as good quality, so it needs to be a bit longer. Um, yeah, because I did go to a cafe with you that one time and, oh, my God, I struggled. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was yawning and I wasn't very productive that morning. But, um, yeah. So, anything else you want to add before we get started? No, I think all the things we touched on from uh, dog breeding to excessive consumerism to daily habits are probably all things we'll, we'll, we'll probably do podcast episodes on at some point as well Yeah, to, to go a little bit deeper in those areas. So yeah, stay, stay tuned for that and uh, let us know if you're interested on hearing more about those topics too. But no, that's it. Let's, shall we get into it? Yes. To set things up, you know, when we talk about environmentalism we talk about minimalism i think the two ideals and lifestyles share as a problem they're trying to solve is the fight against overconsumption mm-hmm. you know because it's the overconsumption which is leading to a lot of issues with clutter uh, a lot of desiring more than what we need defining success in having more things and conversely, overconsumption is having a huge monumental impact on our environment as well. 
So when we look at combining those ideals under eco-minimalism, we have a real chance to reduce this snowball of consumerism. And to, I suppose, to make that more concrete, we do have a few statistics that we want to share to really drive the point home. And as we go through these statistics, as you're listening to this, perhaps maybe reflect on your consumption habits and uh, see if it aligns with some of the averages we're about to talk about. Yeah, and it's quite surprising, like if you take the time to also do that little bit of work up front to get an idea of where you're at and what you can do to improve and why it's important to do that as well. Um, But it's interesting because I feel that eco-minimalism is something that we've been sort of trying to live or have been living for a long time. But we're not one extreme or the other. We're sort of, you know, we've found our own little ground as Mm. well. So, yeah, let's just get into some of those statistics just to give you an idea of and we'll compare it. We actually went through and did this exercise as well to just get an idea of how we were stacking up against the average statistics. So the average American household consists of over 300,000 items. Now, that's a massive number. I didn't even think that that was humanly possible well, for sounds, one household know, to have sound, that many. It sounds big, right? It sounds like a big number, 300,000 items, but then it's like, is it that big? You know what I mean? Because you don't, you know, unless you've counted your items, how would you really know if, yeah. if that's excessive or not? So th- that's what I find fascinating about about that is we've come a long way <laughs> from mm. completely living within our means with, with not, not as much civilization to... 300,000 things and we don't have context in terms of whether that's related to how many family members are in the household and you know what are their incomes there isn't a huge amount of data on on this particular statistic so take it with a grain of salt as well yeah Um, even if it's half yeah still feel like seems like a big number though doesn't it um so how did we compare like because we did a quick count to get an approximate number yeah, and look, this—it's a quicker exercise than what it appears. And I think if you know, you don't need to go around with like a notepad and take like complete inventory of all of your things because that's a bit obscene, and it's going to take you a while to do that. Um, unless you feel like it. Unless you feel like it, of course. <laughs> You're in lockdown uh, and you need something yeah. to do. <laughs> um, but then it's also like when you start counting your things, you start to realize like, well, how do you categorize some of these items? Like, for example, when you've got your vacuum cleaner, which comes with multiple heads, right? So do you count a vacuum cleaner as one item or do you count all of this? It's attachable accessories as an item as well. Um, and then the same argument could be made for a set of forks or whatever it is. So do you count each piece of paper separately or per notebook or whatever it is? And I suppose that the rules that we set for ourselves during this exercise was we're, we're not going to count any consumables. So like food, for example, or soaps and lotions and things of that nature. We're more just talking about physical items that will hang around the house. That um, don't need replacing. That don't need. Necessarily. Yeah. That's yeah. right. So when when we did this, and look, we weren't we estimated some parts as well because like we couldn't be bothered going into that that amount of detail. But um, well, to sort of set the context, we live in a fully furnished property. Yes. And so when we moved in here, so this used the property that we're currently living in used to be an Airbnb, and so obviously at the beginning of lockdown, a lot of people that had properties as airbnbs decided to start getting in permanent tenants 
and we were lucky enough to get this beautiful house. So we sort of had some of the things that they had here ourselves, but we their quality was probably a little bit better than ours. So for instance, like we've got our own set of forks, knives, spoons and all of that, but we're using theirs instead. There's maybe two boxes that are packed of our things that we're using theirs or vice versa that we've packed of theirs that we're using ours. Um, so we didn't actually count all of the things that are in the house. We counted all of the things that are in the house that are ours. Yes. Um, so keep that in mind with the stats that Mike was about to share with you. Yeah. We basically came back at, a, at 950 items and accounting for just a bit of buffer in that. We'll probably round that up at about a thousand things that we have in total. And uh, what does that mean? Well, not much really because... There's examples of extreme minimalism, which we've wrote about on our website as well, which we'll link to in the show notes. And you've got some people who are well-educated, have plenty of financial security, who choose to live without any furniture, for example. Um, You've got other people who cap their things at like 50 items. So you've got some really extreme examples, but we've never been in the in a train of thought of counting out things as defining some level of goal or success when it comes to minimalism because we just don't find that productive as it really depends on your lifestyle and what you define as essential. So, um, but it does give you some perspective to show that, okay, on average, we've got 300,000 items in a household, even if there were was a, a family and kids and everything involved compared to a thousand for you know, just a couple and a dog is still pretty significant difference uh, when you when you look at that as well. So even if you doubled it, you know, yeah, it would still be much much less. And like if we added in all of the furniture and all of the things that we are using that aren't ours, I'd say you're probably adding maximum like 150 200 items on top of that. So it's not that different still to the thousand mark. Yeah. That's it. But I suppose you, you might be curious, you know, because we, yeah. we, we, we're self-proclaimed minimalists and um, I'm sure you would find that interesting to figure that out. And maybe it's an exercise that you can do for yourself. But I mean, all of this, what does this mean in, in the context of environmentalism? Well, it means that the more things that you have, it's, it's likely that there's, you have more things that you're not using, more things that you need to dispose of and more things that are creating clutter as well. So that's a really interesting thing to maybe track. Um, just to give you an just idea. Just to get a num, you know, just a rough figure so that you're aware. Yep. Yeah. And actually, you know, when you first said, let's go and count everything, I thought, <laughs> I was like, no way. Like, this is going to take us forever. But it took us maybe 20 minutes to do it yeah. all together. But it is kind of finding that barrier. Like, Michael actually went through one of the drawers where when I buy an organic local salad, It comes in a plastic Ziploc bag and we always wash those bags and reuse them for when we're buying produce or whatever we need them for. And he went through that drawer and counted every single plastic bag. So, you know, some people would not bother with things like that, but we just wanted to get an idea of, okay. Yeah. You know, like you can, as you mentioned before, like are you going to count literally every single piece of paper as well? So it just yeah. comes down to what you think is practical yep. um, and what you want to classify as one item compared to multiple items. Yeah. So, yeah. And I think if you're getting that granular, you're kind of missing the, the point. You know, it's more about just getting a sense for 
because as I found that as we're counting your things, you're kind of reaffirming, yeah, I need that. I don't need, you know what I mean? Like you kind of get a sense of your resourcefulness in using the things that you have. Yeah. And I'm sure there's plenty of us that have things in that item count that we should probably not have, you yeah. know, that we can dispose of correctly and reduce that number drastically as well. So, yeah, so that was the first point. Um, The second one was the average British woman purchases 59 pieces of new clothing each year and has never worn 22 items of clothing on average. So that I found interesting. I didn't realize that women buy so much clothes every year. Mm. Compare that to me. I don't think I've ever bought ever as much clothing as I did in the last year as well as gotten clothing that has been given to me from family mainly, from my my brother and my mum. And so I accumulated, so things that I've purchased and things that were sort of hand-me-downs, I had 21 new items Mm -hmm. in the last 12 months. And five of those pieces I haven't worn, not out of those 21, but just overall of my clothing which was 102 pieces I have, which doesn't include socks and undies, but everything else. Mm. So, yeah, 100 100 things total, 20 things purchased in the last year. That's interesting. So, and then on average, women are are buying, what, 60 things? 60 articles of clothing. Okay. And five of those I haven't worn because I just haven't had an occasion to, like it just hasn't either been the right weather Yep. And we're still sort of adjusting to the weather since we've moved here. So there are certain things and, you know, like I have items that I sort of wear for special occasions, but we haven't, you know, there's been no weddings or anything of that yeah. nature. So I haven't had a reason to wear them. And I think that's going to be common, right? And I think when we look at those unused clothing items, 22 on average, I think a lot of people are going to probably pin that down to things that they they wear on special occasions and are not yeah. everyday wear yeah. and and obviously with covid uh, yeah. as well i mean a lot more people working from home yeah. and there's less less need to wear nicer clothes yeah. uh, out as much although i know some people are really committed to putting on great clothes and doing themselves up uh, up even if they are working from home which i yeah. really admire as well but um that certainly well, plays a role i think it you know it helps if you have to be on like a Zoom call or something. Yeah. So at least from the waist up, you're dressed and That's ready it. to go for yeah. work. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think, you know, all of these lockdowns have certainly had an impact on what people are pulling out of their cupboards these days. But um, actually men on average don't wear 19 pieces of clothing from their cupboards. Oh, okay. So... Yeah, so I had... That's not much different to women, really. No, it's not. It's, it's quite consistent. So I counted my things at 60, 60 uh, total uh, pieces of clothing, and I haven't worn five of those things in the last year. And that's because I can't fit into them. Yeah. If I could fit into them, I would have worn them. So so to bring it back, though, I mean, there's one aspect is clutter. So if you've, you've got a wardrobe of things and a, a good chunk of them you're not actually wearing... Well, that's probably worth questioning. Mm-hmm. And we're going to get into tips later, so I won't get into too much detail. But then the other thing is just realizing that the environmental impact of, 
of fashion in general. Right? Yeah. It's the second bit biggest polluter only after the oil industry, isn't it? Yeah. So, you know, again, our overconsumption in, in the area of fashion is, is one thing that's been well documented, but another thing to, to maybe be aware of in, in, as you compare yourself to some of these averages. Yeah, no, that's that's very true. So we're just going to move away from clothing and general items to technology mm. and this is I guess it's it's only a prediction because there hasn't been anyone on earth that has lived from birth to death that has had access to a smartphone mm. you know um, so they're averaging that we'll own 44 smartphones in our lifetime which is about one smartphone per 1.8 years so let's just say Every two years you get a new smartphone. And we were just talking about this last night, how when phones first came out, how technology changed really quickly and how, you know, upgrades were, I think, much more required because tech companies were producing, you know, new technologies and and new ways of things that people really wanted. Yeah, there was more technological leaps in a short amount of time, wasn't there? Yeah. It's like one moment we had a flip phone Motorola. Yeah. Uh, or Nokia 3310s playing Snake. And it seemed like within a couple of years, we there were was taking app stores and <laughs> selfie cameras and fast processing chips and then social media and Uber and all this stuff started to happen Yeah, uh, on top of it. And it just all happened so quickly. Yeah. And yeah we couldn't keep up we just wanted every new feature Mm. and we're upgrading rapidly yeah but i suppose now we're at a different point in technology where it's like well you can't make there's only so much those big leaps as much as you used to right there's not that wow factor as it used to be so i imagine everybody's buying habits has perhaps slowed down well i hope it has because they don't feel the need to upgrade as much as frequently mm. and hopefully the technology is better now that it's going to last longer. Yeah. Um, but it's still, yeah, I still think we can maybe use that average and, and start to see that. Because, I mean, if you look at the environmental impact, I mean, how a lot of these phones are, are manufactured is they're compartmentalized. The suppliers are spread out all around the world, developing different parts of the hardware. Mm. And then they're flying this all across the world. Um, and there's a lot of miles, like um, aeroplane miles used and shipping miles used. So, you know, 80% of the carbon footprint happens before you even turn on the device out of the box. So uh, that's where the impact, most of the impact is coming from. Uh, there are better ways to recycle devices now, but I think the frequency of buying new technology without disposing of it correctly can certainly have a huge environmental impact. But even there's the demand of that and all those miles up front is going to be a big issue. So. Yeah. Um, but so yeah. I guess keep you know some of those things in mind if you decide to upgrade your phone and think like is it really necessary you know yes because cameras these days are really good you don't need the latest hottest yes. I mean I think what our iPhones now have three cameras on the back Yes. Like in 10 years time, is the whole back going to just be covered <laughs> with cameras? <laughs> Who knows? Um, so, We're yeah. taking photos using our eyes at that point, wouldn't we? Yeah. God, don't. <laughs> don't, don't start me on that. Uh, um, you know, like I've had my phone for five and a half years and actually that was a hand-me-down from Michael. Yep. And you've had your phone for three, three and, and a half, half years. Yeah. yeah. But prior to that, like... 
I tend, I, like I've got phones more frequently, you know. Yeah. So I think it just speaks to that point that, you know, we're slowing down, uh, which is a really good thing. But if you do find yourself to be an early adopter and you want the latest and greatest all the time, just, again, let's just keep in mind that uh, all those miles Mm. used to produce that and i think like there is normally also legitimate reasons as to why people upgrade Mm. and why people get a new device sometimes their device is just playing up too much to the point where it's just like it can't function properly and they can't even do the simplest things like call someone or send a text message you mean you mean watching tiktok that's a big priority I don't think I've actually seen it. I don't think I've ever seen what TikTok looks like. Well, I tried to show you because I was like, oh, maybe we should start a TikTok. Yeah, no. And then uh, that was the only time we were really on it. Yep. Yeah. And no, guys, we don't have a TikTok no, no. account. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm not that great at social media at the best of times. So adding an extra layer just didn't make any sense. So. I think YouTube's as far as we're going to go in yeah. terms of venturing out, which we have. Yeah. But yeah, I don't think I'm a, I'm a bit of a dinosaur in that way. I don't I don't like new things too often. Yeah. I'm a bit stuck in my ways and tend to tend to stick to what I feel works or even if it doesn't work, I just <laughs> stick at it. Yeah, so technology and that's just, you know, smartphones. We haven't even touched on televisions laptops how much music has even changed you know from cassette players to cds to to ipods and who even owns an ipod these days i don't know one last point we wanted to make in the statistical section was that your typical 10-year-old child in the UK has over 200 toys and they only play with 12 of those so Meanwhile, 90% of toys are made of plastic. And so when you think about how many toys kids have that they don't actually play with and that either end up in landfill or they just sit there creating clutter is ridiculous. Like that's what not even 10% of their actual toys. Yeah, it's like they 5%. Own. Yeah. yeah, 5%. <laughs> you can do math. <laughs> yeah, with thought that that was quite yeah and it's another well. it's another prime example of this this overconsumption issue right that plays into clutter and environmental impact so but yeah i thought uh, I, and, and again if you've got kids i think this is a, a fun exercise to play and and just to see just how many toys your children have but more importantly how how many of those toys that they're actually using on a daily basis um, and you can try a few different things you know like you can put some of those toys away mm-hmm. and I'm sure that most of the time, if they're not playing with them, they won't even really notice that they're gone. You know, put them away and then bring them out when they when you notice them that they're getting sick of their other toys. Or even with the toys that they don't have, donating them to either children that don't really have any toys to play with, you know, people in need, or even donating them to a toy library. Or in the future, if you do want to get more toys and different toys for your kids, rather than buying them, getting them from a toy library, which is something that one of my friends does for her daughter. And she loves it because she gets to play with new toys all the time. And you're saving money and you're saving space. And they're more stimulated that way because they know that they 
well, at least you know that they have a limited amount of time. Yeah. And you want to get the most out of it while you have it. I think it. that's a fantastic idea. Fantastic yeah. concept. If you have one in your area, we're still more uh, readily available. And we, we learn a lot about some of these tips through uh, a survey we conducted with our audience for families who are trying to apply minimalism. So we'll be sure to link to our findings in that article in the show notes as well because, yeah, I just think that's absolutely fascinating to, to rent toys and to keep it fresh. Yeah, I think it's an awesome initiative. So now we're into the semi nitty gritty <laughs> <laughs> of um, today's topic. So we were just going to, like we've mentioned that we're talking about eco minimalism. So we just want to sort of define both of those terms in isolation a little bit, just so that you get a better understanding of what they are on their own and then they're how they work together. So did you want to tell us what minimalism is on yeah, its own? Yeah, sure. So minimalism and isolation is a philosophy and a lifestyle that fundamentally rejects consumerism. So it's about, you know, identifying what's the most essential things in your life and and I suppose having the discipline and the courage and the understanding to reduce or eliminate the rest. So all you have left over is the things that uh, really light you up, that are really valuable to you um, and what your goals and vision is, uh, of your life. Not and those to-do piles or things that you need to get rid of or things that you need to deal with. <laughs> that's it. That's lurking it. around. That's it. And um, I suppose minimalism extends to beyond things. And yeah. extends to the intentionality you have with the relationships you have in your life, the commitments that you have in your life as well, your digital clutter for consideration there, your mental clutter. So it really is an all-encapsulating lifestyle around fighting this idea of more is always better. So, but what would make like minimalism different to eco-living if you're comparing those two? Yeah, so while, whilst minimalism rejects excessive consumerism, it it certainly has its blind spots if you're purely just looking at minimalism and disregarding the environmentalism side. So, for example, a minimalist might not have many things, but there's a question of how frequently they might replace those things. Yeah. Right? So Because for, minimalism, you know, can also come with an aesthetic. So it's kind of like keeping up with the aesthetic of minimalism. Absolutely. Keeping up with the aesthetic is definitely a point and, and I suppose seeing things that you'd like mm. aesthetically mm. and then, you know, aggressively replacing the things that you no longer like or the things that you like. And you can just get caught in that cycle. So the so things you have you could are not create a lot of waste even just by circling through things and you know, like, ah, oh, these mugs don't fit into my style anymore. Let me just switch them out. Yeah, you know, yeah. Let's than... sell. Let's sell my current ones and get new ones. Yeah. And in your mind, you're like, I'm still a minimalist, but you're still actually consuming a lot and generating a lot of stuff in the in the ecosystem. Yeah, yeah. I suppose the same the same thing could be applied in frequency of purchasing with how you look after your things. So if you if you if you buy stuff and you don't look after it, and then you just discard it and get a new one like mm. this cycle that can be also can um, contributing to a lot of waste as well mm. i mean we've we've talked about many times in the past about you know things that you should ask yourself as a minimalist before you bring them into your life but i think one of those big points there is talking about the life cycle of that product yep and you know buying quality 
things you know you can still be a minimalist and buy things that are poor quality like sometimes you just can't help that because that's all your budget allows for but sometimes buying things secondhand can actually be of better value and better quality than they would be if they were bought brand new yeah so look you've touched on two points there you said extending the lifespan of a product Mm. so if you're just a minimalist you might not value either buying something that's going to last longer up front or investing the time, the skills, the resources to actively repair the things that you currently have. Yes. Uh, to extend the life of them as well. Uh, and then you mentioned, you know, buying secondhand will sometimes lead to more quality goods. Again, if you're driven by this new age aesthetic, yeah, that's often promoted on Pinterest and, and Instagram well, it can be, and everywhere. You know, secondhand can also be it's no, quite a trendy thing no, too. Yeah, secondhand yeah. is trendy too, but a lot of the aesthetics um, can lean itself towards buying new things, yeah, overused it, things it as well. It tends to be more of a modern type of lifestyle. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the other thing, if you're not considering eco-living as a minimalist is how things are discarded and decluttered yeah because if you're just putting everything into directly into the landfill that you're decluttering Mm. then obviously that's going to have a huge Mm. environmental impact if you don't consider where that destination is and the last point is you can still be a minimalist and buy and support brands with unethical unsustainable practices right so you could be supporting a brand in your mind that is quality, but if you look at their supply chain, it's highly destructive to the environment with how they source their materials or ingredients or whatever well, uh, This or, is where you know, the vegan use. component can also come in yeah. to play as well. Yeah. So that's like the difference, I guess. But if you're looking at environmentalism or sustainability on its own what would that look like yes so an environmentalist is about treading as lightly as possible Mm. you know taking perhaps a more inconvenient path to ensure that they're reducing their impact on the planet's resources as much as possible through their actions and what would make like eco living very different from minimalism yeah so i suppose when we're looking at um, environmentalism that doesn't consider the minimalist aspects is an environmentalist normally behaviors to prepare and preserve things so there's this it goes back to the idea of to be an environment like to be a really great environmentalist one of the most effective things you can do is actually make your own things so it's kind of like zero waste yeah yeah you're talking about zero waste so you can make your own things from scratch Mm. whether it's food whether it's clothing you know try and be more skincare try and be more self-sufficient allows you to control the ingredients and materials that you're sourcing it allows you to reduce packaging there's so many environmental much more intentional that's right there's a lot of environmental benefits but with a lot of that preparation and preserving comes stuff yeah like you need more space like, I don't know if you've ever watched um, somebody who's managing... Like, I remember we used to watch videos of people managing their own farms. And then they went through... If you're running a farm, like a hobbyist farm for yourself and trying to be self-sufficient, you're constantly thinking about next season or next year and preserving and bottling. And, like, you need a lot of space yeah. to put jars and jars and jars of jams and chutneys and sauces and freezer space space and like you need a lot of space to put a lot of this stuff so you could be an environmentalist but 
you can just have clutter everywhere because you're trying to make everything from from scratch. You're trying to put it in places to use for the future. And another point is you might require more tools mm. to prepare things. So, And then also if you've got a philosophy of repairing your own things, which is a very good thing to have, especially if you have the skills, but quite often you need the equipment or the gear like a sewing machine or drills or whatever it is to be able to repair your own things so being handy and skillful could come with a lot of stuff and equipment in itself as well and the third point that differentiates environmentalism well environmentalists in isolation may not consider from a clutter standpoint is hanging on to clutter for longer than what they perhaps need to because uh, i know a lot of environmentalists are so concerned about where their things go to next beyond your use that if you don't find an appropriate destination you could just hang on to it yeah right far more far longer than you'd need that's right so meanwhile it's great for the environment because you're trying to find the right home Mm -hmm. or you're or or conversely you're thinking about well you know maybe i might need this in the future you're always asking you know because you're resourceful you're always mm. thinking, well, I don't want to waste this. I have to find I have to find something I can do with this. Yeah. Meanwhile, years pass by when you're not using it, accumulating clutter. And it also just adds to your mental to-do list and your mental capacity to every time you step into the garage, you might look at those unfinished jobs or things that you're wondering, will I actually ever use this again? Oh, yes, that's, you know, like you just constantly like, I already have oh, I've that. Got to, I've got to learn how to make kombucha i've got this scoby oh i need to learn how to sew this oh i need to, you know like you can yeah create this overwhelming list of things you need to do and stuff that's unfinished yeah yeah that's yeah. a good point so what would it look like now for us to combine those two lifestyles together yeah so i mean despite their differences eco living and minimalism is like uh it's a beautiful harmony and and i think the, the way i look at it it's like minimalism is about you and protecting your experience in this world and living intentionally with less clutter and then environmentalism is about the planet so you've got one component which is a self-interest and one component which is an external interest and together i think they make a really powerful combination and as we get into some of these tips you'll see how they come together as a result of that yeah so speaking of tips did you want to get get into them yeah sure let's do it cool and so, we'll try and we'll try and keep this we'll try and keep this fairly tight um, because I think you know you can dive into great detail in the post as well. Yeah, we're mindful of uh, your time. <laughs> yeah. Um. So how does an identity play a role in living this lifestyle? Like any behaviour change, and and something we've talked about before in our identity episode, which we'll link to in the show notes. I don't remember the the episode number. But embodying the identity of somebody who who cares about living with less stuff and who cares about the sustainability of the planet is is often the first step. It's the why part that drives all the actions that come with it, right? Because if you're not used to these concepts, it can be quite hard to find a time, to find a mental capacity, to declutter, to live a perhaps a less a slightly less inconvenient part. So you need to ask yourself why you want to do this what impact are you seeking what are the benefits of that and um not that you have to go and and change um your social media profiles to say that you're an eco-minimalist that's not what it's about but internally you know why these ideals important to you 
And is this something that you can realistically incorporate as part of your values? It's a good way to put it. And I think it's sometimes it's important to look beyond ourselves and how an impact can be made so that you feel like you're contributing to the world as well. Absolutely. Yeah. So from there, so what would something like eco-friendly decluttering look like? Yeah. So, I mean, let's let's look at decluttering first. So decluttering, uh, we often talk about destination piles, okay? So everything you decide to discard needs to go somewhere, right? Those options normally include like your sentimental box, rubbish, recycling, secondhand store to sell, to scan, you to know. To give back to the person that actually owns <laughs> yeah, to it. to return it. <laughs> um, well, there's all these different avenues, but I suppose if you're to make your decluttering more eco-friendly, you really want to focus on the giving away and selling pile because by focusing on and having the majority of your things funnel through those avenues, you're increasing the chances of your things having a new life. You know, going to someone specific that you give your item to somebody who will use it or Mm. sell it to somebody who will use it is always the most eco-friendly option of moving things through the economy. Yeah. Right? Even even better than recycling. You know what I mean? Because it's actually going to get use. Yeah. So I think that's the main tweak. If you're just concerned about minimalism, then you're just going to be lobbing things into your bins, like Mm. left, right and centre, or just donating them to your thrift shops or secondhand shops, which we've talked about at length, and that's not always the best option. Mm. So, yeah, if you can, try and funnel it through either selling it to somebody who'll get value or giving it away to somebody who will absolutely use it. And that's how you apply eco-friendly decluttering. Yeah, because I think that in the minimalist movement itself, I don't think that this is a topic that's talked about enough. You know, when it comes to minimalism, the whole message is just to get rid of things. Mm. And it's not like, well, hang on, how can we get rid of those things responsibly? How can we get rid of them in a way that's actually not going to create damage? And I'd be really interested to see what the statistics would be once the minimalist movement picked up as to how much things went to landfill Mm. compared to them potentially being sold or passed on or donated or whatever. Even donation, you know donating it is also in some ways like you're freeing yourself of that responsibility yeah and a lot of things that get donated end up in landfill anyways because there's only a certain percentage of things that do get sold um, in secondhand stores before they end up being disposed of um, because they're just they're over flooded with donations all the time so that's an interesting point too to keep in mind and, and i understand that because all the other options are more convenient yeah right yeah so we got it comes back to that word convenience environmentalists tend to take a more inconvenient path and it means that to give away or to sell things to people that will actually use your thing requires you to allocate time to find these people to network to find the right home you know you risk hanging on to things longer than what you need to do you know what i mean all the stuff we talked about before but that's the type of efforts required if you want to consider the planet yeah. as well. Like based on what you mentioned earlier is, you know, minimalism is about you. So, yes. you know, it's like, well, I want to make sure that I'm doing this in a timely manner and I want to spend time doing things that I actually enjoy. Therefore, I don't enjoy selling things. I don't enjoy yeah. fixing things, you know. So it's when you're combining 
sustainability and minimalism together that's when I think it's also a really important thing to mention that it's a mindset as Mm. well that sustainability you need to actually have a little bit more patience you need to do things that you normally might not enjoy but you want to do them because they mean something on a larger scale yeah and and you'd hope by doing this exercise it would even add more urgency to how important it is to bring in the right things to your life so you can reduce the amount of time is spent looking for a new owner for your stuff yeah so since we're talking about that do you want to share some of the questions that we should be asking before we actually buy something yeah well i think like we've um, talked about this before we but have we yeah. want to kind of um reiterate it and mention yeah, and I it think in it, this context and i think it's important to again it allows us to distinguish between the two lifestyles and now what eco-minimalism looks like yeah. from a set of questions so minimalism by itself is about okay if you're looking to acquire something you, you, you're ruthlessly you know you're applying the concepts of slow per- slowing down the purchasing cycle and considering everything that you need for your own needs right how essential is this thing going to be for my life and as long as it ticks that box and you're going to use it and it's not going to become clutter then you're winning as a minimalist however as an eco-minimalist that's when we need to ask questions about what ingredients are used, the quality of the ingredients in terms of chemical impact or is it organic or is it naturally sourced, etc. How much packaging and plastic is used in the production? What's the carbon footprint for you know having this product become available for you? You know, what is the resale value or are there methods of support to extend the life cycle of this product? Like I mean, you can buy you can buy eco-friendly jeans now made from organic cotton with services like post-purchase services to help you repair them you know Mm. what i mean i think mud jeans does that um you can buy an iphone which you have access to a genius bar to help you replace batteries and screens and repair your phone so you can look at the post-purchase service available for whatever you're trying to buy uh, is another consideration as well. So, so those are the, the the type of questions that you'll probably need to layer on on mm. top of just you know, is this essential to you? Yeah. And so, but when you're purchasing those things and when you're looking at everything that you own, like what could be the potential limits in terms of storage? Talk a little bit more about the storage situation when yep. it comes to being someone that's an eco warrior that has like a hundred, two hundred jars for preserving. You know, like how yeah. storage has to play. Like you touched on it before, yeah. but just reiterate it a little bit more in detail. Well, well, I think this is critical, right? Because as someone who's more environmentally conscious, as someone who's more handy, um, someone who's trying to preserve, repair, make things from scratch. Okay, that's all fine. But then if you're going to act like a producer of things, then try and treat it like a professional producer like you know if you're going to use sewing machines and drills and all that stuff do they have an allocated storage space in your home do you know exactly where you're going to be using those things when you use them Um, in terms of jars and and things that you have in your pantry your, your freezers your fridges can you cap that you know instead of just exponentially adding more things to preserve and make can you set a limit like, can you actually come to, okay, 
my shelf space can only handle mm. 20 jars. Anything more than that becomes too much. It becomes clutter. And then can you be more intentional about the things that you're preserving that you're getting the most value out of? Sure, you need to do some testing and experiment, sure. But can you ultimately just cap things? And it's like the one in, one out sort of philosophy, right? It's like, okay, rather than adding more things to to do, prepare and preserve, you have to effectively use up something first Mm. um, before you can add something new. And that just helps you reduce the amount of overwhelm and clutter in your environment as a result of some of these activities i think this is where community can play a really important role in you know that you don't feel like you need to be able to do everything so do you want to like share a little bit about how leveraging the community is really important as an eco-minimalist yeah i mean well look i think it's fast you know i love business i love just thinking about business and i think there's a lot of things that we can learn from that but we, we talk about how in most economies and business structures, things are supplied, like you source things from different specialists, right? Mm. So to manufacture a car, to get the parts, they're all coming from these different areas of specialization. And if you look at crops, if you look at food, it's all coming from different areas of specialization. So rather than being the jack of all trades for self-sufficiency, which is you know, attractive to a lot of people uh, who, who have a strong environmentalism identity. Um, perhaps you can start, you know, working together in community rather than you having all the skills, you lend one or two skills to community and everybody does that in a group and all of a sudden you have this sharing of resources, you know what I mean? One person can grow tomatoes while the other person grows pumpkins while the other person's pickles jars whilst the other person is the seamstress whilst the other person is the mechanic whilst the other person is the uh, other person is a computer engineer and you're all sharing your skills together you can do this in a formal environment like a repair cafe or you can do it in a less formal environment from a community that you formulate yourselves where you're sharing skills you're sharing your things and then that way you're carrying less stuff there's less pressure on you to do that because you're getting it from the community and you're contributing. So this could be a far better way to tread lightly and to also not not have as much clutter. And I think, you know, that's a great way, especially if you don't have everyone in your household that agrees with your life choices and everything to surround yourself with like-minded people. Yes. But speaking of which, like how can you work around family and roommates if they don't quite well i'll say yet get on board with eco minimalism yeah so we touched on this on a previous episode about you know how to encourage minimalism without being pushy and the same concept applies to eco minimalism because again these are these are huge enough paradigm shifts when you're on your own journey so to expect that from people you live with is unrealistic and you shouldn't put any pressure on them in saying that it doesn't prevent you from owning your little spaces in the house and, and negotiating with people, whether it's allocated storage in the kitchen, allocated storage in the bathroom, having obviously, if you're in a shared room, having one part of the room that's yours or if you've got your own room, then completely making that a hub for eco-minimalism. Like you can 
own your tiny little bits of space throughout the house that is like your little sanctuary for how you want to live out your ideals. And hopefully through action and and positivity and leading by example, it might spark some questions. And we've seen this time and time again in our own lives. If you just start being about that life, you know, you you find your friends and family will start making slightly different decisions. Mm. And they they might even start looking for your approval. I might even be like, hey, you see what I did there? <laughs> I didn't, I didn't put my banana peel in the bin. You know what I mean? Like I put it in the in the compost. You, you know, or I went and bought all these things without plastic. Mm. You know, like and 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 you're like, oh, awesome. You know what I mean? But they start to get that sense of pride in them making their own decisions. Don't expect that. Don't have those expectations. You just hope that over time, in owning your own little pockets of space without being pushy that they start to want to try their their best as well. And again, this is where community is really important to make sure that you can still surround yourself with like-minded people, even if that doesn't mean it's the people that you live with, but doing your best. And speaking of like surrounding yourself with the right people, how can we use minimalism to free up the time to then involve ourselves in more eco-friendly activities whether it be on our own or with with others yeah and i think that you know a huge part of environmentalism is being actually being of service so beyond your own personal consumption habits it's i'm sure that many of us have intentions of planting a tree intentions of going to the farmer's market every week intentions of watching documentaries around environmentalism you know reading books educating ourselves so there's there's all these intentions that we have but then we perhaps have a lack of time and and if these things are not as strong a priority as other things in our lives that we need to do then it falls by the wayside so the beautiful thing about minimalism if you're applying it to let's say your commitments and relationships in terms of trying to pull back on some toxic relationships which are very taxing on your time and your emotional energy or or actually looking at your schedule and saying, you know what, like, do I really need to be doing as many things as I'm doing? Like, it's all really worth it. You know, I remember when I I used to play basketball three times a week and how liberating it was to just stop doing that. Like, you know what I mean? I got to the point where it's like, oh, I don't actually need to do this. And it freed up my time to pursue a lot more different activities and things that I was interested in. So obviously that's a decision that you can make, only you can make, but by doing that and a, Having that intentionality to your schedule, to your relationships could be actually a really good tool to allow you to be able to do some of those other things that you've always wanted to do, to to go to the library more, to go to the farmer's markets more, to plant trees, to participate in activism, um, to start a blog <laughs> or an Instagram or YouTube channel about sustainability, whatever it is. Mm. Um, however you want to contribute, you can use minimalism to free up that capacity. Yeah. And I think talking about minimalism like I sometimes people think that like minimalism and eco living to a degree can be more of an elitist lifestyle Mm. and that you need a lot of money to kind of live in that space but I think when you're looking at minimalism in itself you're looking at something where you're using your money in a way that 
is with a lot of intention and you can save a lot of money by stopping that cycle of consumerism. Mm. Um, And you'd be surprised how much money will be left in your back pocket because of it. So how can we use minimalism to create more cash to invest into eco-friendly activities or the lifestyle in general? Yeah, I mean, well, look, it goes back to the previous examples, right? 300,000 items in households on average. Mm. You know, women women are buying 60 articles of clothing a year. We're buying new phones every two years. So all of a sudden, if we're not buying as much stuff, mm. we're saving more money. Yeah. Right? It's pretty simple. On top of that, if we're getting rid of stuff and some of the stuff we're selling, mm. we're creating more cash. Yeah. Right? So what? <laughs> we're creating more cash. <laughs> So, by by consuming less and getting rid of more, we're actually creating more money. You know, and we we talk we talk. Uh, one of our earliest episodes is about minimalist money and and how we use minimalism as a tool to you know clear out all of our debt. And please go back and listen to that episode if you haven't already to get a, a better understanding of this. But it's 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 amazing just how much cash can be saved saved from minimalism, especially if you're applying sustainability and you're buying more secondhand stuff and you know what I mean like things that are a little bit more affordable not just aesthetically premium and with that extra cash you can like you can now start to invest in things that are going to help the environment so for example you might want to invest in a portfolio like an investment portfolio that's more eco-friendly right or you might want to save up for a tiny house and live off grid as much as you can like or you might want to save up and just contribute to or donate to environmental organizations please be careful which ones you make sure you screen them properly to ensure they're doing the right things but people who are trying to preserve forests or waters or whatever it is um, you can start donating and paying forward your money to support those causes directly as well so there's a lot of amazing things you can do once you free up that cash that can help you live a more eco-friendly lifestyle and you're putting like you're investing your time and energy into things that are actually really positive. So you're putting out the right energy into the universe as well. I'm not yeah. going to get too woo-woo for some people here, but I think that's a really important fact to remember that, you know, whatever you're putting out, you're also bringing into your own life. So, but you're talking about all of these things of like how you're spending money, but how can we actually like still reduce like I think it would be an important thing to mention here how you can maybe try buying nothing for a little while so what what's what's like a buy nothing challenge like yeah. what does that look like yeah so that's that's a really common um approach to minimalism is to embark on a, at a period of time a set period of time a month three months 12 months where you don't buy anything and the rules typically are that you don't buy anything that isn't a consumable Right, so you still need to consume food and and deodorant and all this stuff just to live on a daily basis. But you don't bring in anything material. You don't bring in anything that's like um, a fixture, if you like. And by doing that, you address both lifestyles. That's that's eco minimalism one hundred and one, right? Because you're consuming less for the environment. You're consuming less for your clutter and your insanity. So that could be a really fun thing to do. Um, I recommend the book by Kate Flanders called A Year of Less. Uh, when she embarked on a year of basically buying nothing and some of the transformations she experienced as a result of doing that. But I think this is a really fun activity to do with friends, to challenge each other to see how long you can go without buying anything in addition that extends beyond your consumable things. 
And I think it's also an important thing to note, like I know in that time you'd probably, you know, like your toaster might break or you might have a a chair that, you know, mm. the leg decides to just give out. So without buying things, how can you try something different? Like, well, can you go without your toaster? Can you use your grill instead? Can you use your fry pan to toast the bread? Mm. Can you get it from your next door neighbor or get somebody to fix it for you? That's like, right. So I think it will actually, you'll start to, to work ways around buying things by trying to either fix them, use other things in its place. And that'll just sort of start to rewire your brain as to how you think about, you know, something that you would normally just replace straight away. Nice point. <laughs> um, I, so, I, I, I got to add that to the blog post. <laughs> Very good. Um, so just to wrap it up, I think it's important to also note, like with anything, with minimalism, with being an eco-friendly warrior, like how far is too far when it comes to eco-minimalism? Oh, yeah. I mean, the, the pressure that these two lifestyles can create, either from counting your items, you know, trying to live with as few things as possible or just the frustration of you doing everything you can for the environment yet the moment you walk out your door you realize that people around you are living completely differently in in excess and in destruction it can be very overwhelming and you might have moments where you just want to impulsively buy something right or you you don't want to make everything from scratch yeah you know and this is where it's like the community you know you might want to leverage on on other people or like buy things you know like you might not want to preserve everything but you want to support small businesses that do do that so that you're kind of giving back to the the right economy the right businesses in that sense as well yep absolutely and and i think like you, you just shouldn't like, like I know it's easy to say, but you really shouldn't beat yourself up. Mm. You know what I mean? Like, I, in the last three years, have probably ordered maybe two coffees out without bringing my own um, coffee mug. And I have felt terrible <laughs> those both times. Like... Or, you know, there's been that, you know, the one time at the beach where we had to get bottled water. Jeez. And, um, like, those moments, it's okay. Like, you know what I mean? It's like, it's a net-net game. If you're understanding that you're doing the best that you can, and when I say that, it's like, objectively, not just making 10% improvement and thinking that, you know, you're doing a really good job, but, like, you know, you really are putting in the effort and every now and then you might give in to something. It's okay. You know what I mean? Like, it's not going to be sustainable for you to pursue this lifestyle if you're going to beat yourself up over every little detail. Um, And it can end up being very stressful. Because I think at the end of the day, your mental health is really important. Yes. Um, And you can't be of service if you can't look after yourself as well. So that's um, something to sort of keep in mind. And everybody's different. Some people can take on more than others. Some people see it as a bigger priority in their lives than others do. So I think, again, it just reiterates to make sure that you're not beating yourself up about it and that you're doing everything that you can within within reason. 
because eco anxiety is real, you know, it it really is. Um, yeah. So cool. it can send you spiraling if you're not careful. Exactly. I reckon we wrap it up there. Is there anything else you want to add before we close up? No, I think you that's do? it. Yeah. Cool. I think that's a lot there. So. Uh, if you want to follow along with the article or some of the other resources we mentioned in this episode, you can go over to theminimalistvegan.com slash 064 um, to check out all the links there. Cool. Well, thanks so much for tuning in, guys. And I hope you enjoyed another episode of the Minimalist Vegan podcast. And if you have anything you want to share with us or if you have any questions, you can do so on our social media, send us an email or down below where you can access the show notes for this episode at the link that Michael just mentioned. But we hope that you enjoy your day, night, wherever you are in the world. And we'll speak to you next time. That's good. Take care, guys. Thanks. Bye. Bye.